It's May 2020 and over the two years there has been a lot of speculation and discussion about returnees. Family members of ISIS foreign fighters who were nationals of Trinidad and Tobago coming back home. In August 2018, the government of Trinidad and Tobago formed the Nightingale Team, described by Minister of National Security Stuart Young as a multidisciplinary, multi-agency team to deal with the repatriation and reintegration of citizens of Trinidad and Tobago who are held in camps in Syria and who had former allegiance to the Islamic State. There are approximately 100 Trinidad and Tobago nationals in Syria, many are children, who were taken to Syria by their parents and who had no choice. Women are also included in the group. The issue of repatriation and reintegration into society is one that is tangled and needs careful planning. First, Foundation of Islamic Relief Support and Training is the organization that is working to put things in place for the returnees. Caribbean Investigative Journalism Network had the opportunity to chat with Chairman of FIRST, Mufti Abrar Ali. We asked him about FIRST and what do citizens of Trinidad and Tobago need to bear in mind about the issue of returning nationals? And FIRST is an organization that we actually came together, pulled uh, a few people who were working on different initiatives around the Muslim community. Uh, we started off actually calling the group Returnees Support Group um, because we saw there was a great humanitarian um, need. I mean, it's highlighted by the UN and so on as being one of dubbed as the greatest children's um, catastrophe in the 21st century. Um, so because of that, uh, we had some interest and previously we were having discussions with uh, different agencies, uh, be it government, be it um, embassies, um, different stakeholders. We were trying to promote the importance of having balanced communities, ensuring that communities are doing their part against extremism and radicalization. So when we started working together, it's a group of people who had different types of strengths. And uh, we decided let's come together in a formal group and uh, we'll call it this name first. The first had been registered previously and then we, we ended up taking over that organization called FIRST. And um, now we do work in specifically on these types of topics. For people who are skeptical, I do not, um, I, I won't undermine their, their thoughts and their concerns that they have. Um, that's something that we all have to have. Um, definitely, it's a concern that we have in first as well. As part of the national security and the need for a balanced approach, we have to be careful about how much allowance we give to people who might have had um, previous encounters with you know, radicalization and, and also extremism and so on. And, and that's an ongoing thought that we have to maintain throughout in, in the country at large and, um, and the world. So it's something that we do, we're cognizant of and we definitely want to maintain and we want to um, keep that thought alive. Uh, however, being balanced as well, you have to put things in this context. And one of those things that we do generally try to highlight is um, uh, freedom, um, foreign fighters or people who would have had some sort of exposure to extremism uh, are still human beings and they're still supposed to be treated in such a way that is becoming of a human. And um, that would mean sometimes that uh, they might have to go through incarceration if it's deemed necessary, if they're actually charged and so on, and that's a given. I think everybody agrees on that. 
But even with that, um, the humanitarian aspect of it should not be forgotten at any time. Um, so if there are actual engagement, there's a process that needs to be taken and any civil society and any, any law can understand that, that that's a very important aspect of our law and order. Um, that being said though, most of the foreign fighters that we've heard about and um, we've always had such a big concern about, many of them are no longer alive. And um, the, the people that we generally are talking about are children and, and women and uh, people who are left to, to wither on them, their own and, and who have no support. So our group is generally focused mainly with that part of it, where we, we're looking into children and women's issues. For adults and, and for men, we've not really had so much um, need because um, we've not, actually not had any major cases. Um, we've heard of some cases, but we've not had anyone, you know, talking about them or having any need to, you know, help repatriate or bring them back in any way. It is without doubt that a whole-of-society approach needs to be adopted if there is to be successful reintegration. In November 2019, a report from Middle East Eye News surfaced stating that there were close to 100 TNT nationals at the Al-Hol camp in Syria. According to Mifti Abrar, the figures, based on feedback from family members in Trinidad, suggest the most recent number to be 68 children aged 14 and younger. How is reintegration possible? Abrar Ali went on to share his thoughts. Well, part of the whole society approach is definitely there's um, many progs to this fork and, and to the approach. We have to have different players in the game. One of them is definitely law enforcement. We can all understand that national security and the need to either protect the outer borders or um, having law enforcement ensure and enforce law within the borders. Um, so those are given and those something those are two things that we definitely work with and we acknowledge and we will always support. But with that, um, we have to have civil societies having an influence on the people as well. Uh, we have to support um, different types of initiatives. Sometimes it might be for children. When you come to the discussion with children, you have over 7,000 children who are displaced from foreign lands there in Syria. You have over 43,000 children on the whole, many of them being from Syria and Iraq and that, that area, but 7,000 of them being national foreigners from other countries. So, you know, that, that needs, to be, um, needs to be understood. So you'll have needs, for example, you'll have um, medical needs, and, and that's one of the dire needs right now there in those camps. Um, we have um, social needs, you have psychological needs. Um, some of the basic human needs right now is not being met. So as, as part of our whole society approach, um, we discussed many different options when we were um, looking at it, when we had discussions with people like the Children's Authority and the Comsec or Commonwealth Secretariat um, CVE unit. And we had even um, discussions with the U.S. Embassy and so on. Some of the discussions we were discussing is um, putting all of the different factors in place to be able to deal with people who will return and um, ensuring that you have a good, stable approach for them. So sometimes you would look into housing, you would look into, um, again, psychological support, medical support, um, and the list goes on. 
I think um, one of the things that, again, with the whole society approach, um, some of the things that we highlighted as well, even to the government, is uh, it, it needs to be practical. One of the things that, um, one, one aspect that we, we did touch on is security. So it has to be the both sides of it. One is that you don't overstep your, your authority by not um, allowing life to continue with, with your own citizens, where you stop them, you do not care for them, you do not repatriate them, you leave them there. Um, and, and even with children and so on, you don't have over-enforced or, or too stringent um, measures to protect with, with security and you have an innocent child that you're looking at. So you can't do overkill. At the same time, you can't just undermine the needs of security and safety for our citizens. So one of the things that we promoted is that um, have that inclusiveness of, of discussion and that discussion comes with different um, members of society where we have, for example, we, we would have heard of the Nightingale Committee that was formed and the idea behind that committee, which I do support in, in the initiative, the initiative itself is a good one, where you have different members of the government themselves, the players that comes together to try and decide of how to deal with the issues that they're facing. So sometimes you have the need for insurance authority because they need to make sure and take care of the child that, that needs to come back. They have um, law enforcement to ensure that the safety is done there. They have a um, ministry of health, but uh, and those are some of the things that they did not really include yet because they were having some, as I would say glitches or uh, still to be worked on, still to be improved. Um, I think that needs to be a factor of education as well, um, psychology as well and also civil society and um, the community members, because the Muslim community has taken up the initiative to try and help with the process, because although it's not a Muslim thing, um, radicalization and terrorism is not a Muslim crisis, um, but it's something that is affecting us and it's something that we have to recognize and something that we have to help with, because um, a lot of times the outer public is associating some of these extremist view, views and uh, behaviors with Islam. So if we don't stand up and uh, defend Islam, then it definitely will affect us as well. So we are supporting the need of um, having multiple approaches. The role of society and what we hope for them to understand is that humans are always humans and you have to acknowledge the humanity in people. Um, from the time we give up on humanity, we've given up on our own selves. That's something that we acknowledge and we have to be cognizant of at all times when we're dealing with issues. Radicalization is a principle and ideology and exists in a lot of countries. The process to de-radicalize and rehabilitate individuals is not specific to terrorism. It is similar to individuals who belonged to gangs and who were used to a life of crime, including violent acts. Boys Town in Nebraska in the United States was founded in 1917 as a home for abused and neglected boys, some of whom engaged in criminal acts. The Boys Town education model has helped over 27,000 children in the U.S. and has expanded overseas. CIJN asked Jeff Peterson, the director of home campus programs at Boys Town, about his thoughts on implementing programs for rehabilitation and whether he believed that returnee children can be reintegrated, knowing that the possibility exists 
that some of them may have been child soldiers. A couple things come to mind uh, when you're thinking of, of how to deal with large problems in large communities. And you, you've got to have multidisciplinary approaches to, to dealing with this. So in our experience working with um, kids that come from these, these, these backgrounds in the states, working with schools, working with uh, faith-based uh, uh, groups, uh, working with community organizations, when, when everybody comes at it uh, and has a piece of that, that seems to be more successful. A lot of times um, people believe that there needs to be heavy psychological services for each of these kids to um, kind of make the turn. And, and in fact, most of the research says that if they have uh, what we refer to as, as healthy um, uh, pro proactive teachers, proactive mentors, uh, proactive family members that we see a lot of the behavior turn in the right direction and uh, then you can kind of save and, and target uh, more heavy psychological services uh, for those kids and those families that are, are really desperate really having significant problems. I absolutely believe that uh, kids uh, should be and can be uh, reintegrated successfully and you know if you think of the way uh, the, the, the way we approach children that engage in problem behaviors, and I would say that engaging in, in uh, extremist behavior is a behavior. Kids that display problem behaviors, it's always a learned situation. They learn that. And when you recognize and you accept the fact that there's not something organically wrong with the child, they've been exposed to this, they've learned this behavior, the good news is you can teach them pro-social things and social skills that will teach them more pro-social behavior. And you have to kind of accept that. I come from an organization, our founder was a very wise man, and he said, way back in 1920, he said the statement, there's no such thing as a bad boy, just bad learning and bad environment. And I think if you can, can counteract the learning and the environments and create more positive spaces there, every kid can, can be turned and become uh, a valuable part of their community and reintegrated successfully without, uh, uh, without problems. To ignore that problem and not provide any specific or focus uh, services, you are asking for some further problems. If you don't intervene with something and, and some good programming, uh, the chances of that kid learning uh, new behaviors is, is pretty remote. But if you target and, and implement some good programming in the schools, in the community, with the families, and with some psychological supports, I think all those kids can be reintegrated successfully. Knowing that the reintegration process is multifaceted, and organizations such as the Children's Authority in Trinidad and Tobago will be part of the efforts, the insights from a psychologist sheds light on what is necessary for an effective program. We asked Dr. Rachel Nelson, Director of the Colorado Resilience Collaborative at the University of Denver, what she believed the approach in Trinidad Tobago should be. When you're dealing with something that could be framed as a public health issue, it requires all sectors and all levels to be involved so that their role can be instrumental. So, for example, a teacher will have one role, a community police officer will have another, a parent will have another. So, Programming and decision making really has to be an interdisciplinary effort um, because no one piece of the community can handle the issue by themselves.
ISIS propaganda included footage of child soldiers. And we asked Dr. Nielsen if she felt they could be reintegrated and how can it be done? This was her response. It's a little bit tricky, but I'll say that with children, they can have absorbed some very um, dangerous behaviors. They could have learned um, how to even be lethal. They could be exposed to traumatic events that then shape the way that they view the world and they view themselves in the world, what's dangerous to them and what's not. And they're coming back to a place that they may not be familiar with at all. My understanding is that they may have not ever been here. So based on child development, I think people need to understand that their ability to problem solve is still developing. Uh, they don't have a lot of experience even just being on the planet. But everything that they have experienced tells them this is who I am, this is where I am, this is what I need to do. They're going to be clinging to their families and probably one or two key adults in their life and might be looking to them for everything. Um, so I think the more kids can be involved in the community here in any way, um, it gives opportunity to influence and support them, but also to take care of them if they do have trauma, uh, take care of their educational needs, make sure that they have opportunities to be healthy people here. Um, and what goes along with that is also making sure that they're not doing things that are dangerous. I don't think it's really either or. I believe that it here will probably look more like them immediately um, being in the community, uh, being in a private residence, and going to a local school, but um, that to be, to be successful and to be safe, there need to be wraparound services for them. There needs to be involvement from people who do live here, not just isolated within their family, um, but that people are reaching out to them and showing interest in them, getting involved in their lives. So again, teachers, coaches, other kids, um, reaching out to them and, and helping them to integrate. Mufti Abrar Ali also shared his opinions about radicalization as chairman of FIRST. Well, one of the things that uh, I think is really important and something that we've been working on uh, as well from our side at FIRST is, is having a structured measure in what we would call de-radicalization. De-radicalization programs has different approaches. You know, sometimes it depends on the, the type of group that is dealing with it, um, the approach of the government. So there's many factors that actually influence that radicalization. One of the things that we definitely have to be mindful of is the, the type of people that you're dealing with um, would be different. And each one of them would have a, a different way of interacting with you. Some would be outright um, opposing and not ready to, to engage with you. Some of them would be very sympathetic and um, would openly um, explain their, their situation and, and their plight. And, and they would be openly um, admitting the mistake and the um, direction that they, they have taken. So that's something that we are 
very much um, interested in in, in supporting a de-radicalization program that would have a lot of um, education as well. It would have some support where we would give so social um, support in, in different ways sometimes. But the thing about reality of humanity, we have people having major issues in life. When you go to find out, you know, what's the problem with that person, you realize that it's just because that person didn't have a square meal on a daily basis that caused them from one to the other to the other until that's where they reach in the end. So sometimes you have to figure out the path that people take, and that's really important to understand the, the method that you'll actually be engaging with them. Um, when you do that, definitely will it will have you know, you can have hope for, again, reclaiming that humanity in the person. You also have the need for um, legal support as well. Um, because, you know, when we look at the legal system, a lot of times people think that, you know, um, the law is there to enforce or to punish. Uh, and that's not true. Um, all law, whether it be Islamic law, whether it be um, conventional law, law is there to preserve humanity and the rights of others and um, it's to ensure that people don't overstep on the rights that they have with other people um, that whether it be with trade whether it be with their wealth whether it be with their life and any type of of needs and, and, and rights that people hold so even with law as well when people have caused themselves difficulty and harm and gone the wrong wrong way or wrong path it means that law should ensure that there's some type of change and some type of rehabilitation taking place in that person's life and that's why even when we go into jails for example and um, quite commonly we call it jails but it's supposed to be correctional facilities where a person can reflect on their own lives and realize that the mistakes that they've made and then change those mistakes so correctional facilities are not supposed to be um, centers where we we actually increasing crime and quite frankly a lot of places in the world they actually it's one of those schools for crime that you can go to so you you go to you go to a jail you learn a lot of the tricks of of the trade so it's something that you have to look at in a very open mind frame and a bird's eye view when you do that you'll definitely see much more potential in in the situations that we're dealing with when Shane Crawford was featured in Davik magazine, a publication of the Islamic State, it shocked the Twin Island Republic nation of Trinidad and Tobago. Mufti Abrar explains that Crawford was not a member of the community. The mosque has since been tarnished, and the community has undergone a type of silent persecution due to misperceptions and misconceptions. Ali explains. A lot of times, again, when people are alien to another person's culture, sometimes we're left and we're prone to um, having misconceptions. We have our own um, assumptions of what takes place in communities. And, and that's something you, you can't really blame. It's just um, sometimes it just happens in, in the fabric of how society is built. Um, the reality of uh, places like our mosque, our mosque is Nuri Islam Masjid um, in San Juan, and it's one of the biggest jamaats. Jamaats actually mean congregation of people that comes together. Um, on a daily basis, uh, as you would have heard, um, Muslims, they pray five times a day, and for five times a day, the, the mosque is usually open, and, um, and that would be anyone can come in to, have, to pray their the, the prayer and, and leave. So on a daily basis, 
um, for every prayer, you have at least 100 people coming in. And um, on the higher number, which is the afternoon prayer, when people come from work and so on, we have approximately 200 to 250 people every single day. So that's in the night, for example. Now, I'm being one of the people who are responsible in the mosque as well. Sometimes you will see people coming in and you might not know who they are. Sometimes you have people coming in and they would pray and they would leave. Sometimes you'll have people coming in and um, there might be people who are living around. They're coming in for weeks and days and even up to months, but you don't know who the person is. Sometimes you will have uh, a connect, uh, uh, interaction with them and you'll ask them basic questions because, you know, you can't invade in someone's privacy. So you'll just ask them how you, where you're from, where you used to live. And, and, but generally, um, it's an open mosque for everyone. And a lot of times people don't understand that concept, especially people of other faith and, and the national public. They think sometimes that when you go to a mosque, or if you went to that mosque, that means that the mosque had something to do with your understanding of your Islam or your way of, of practice and so on. Uh, it's actually quite far from reality as well. Just like um, everything is, it's, it's a global village and um, everyone has access to all information that is needed. Similarly, in, in Muslims as well, with information on Islam and also with how you want to choose to practice your religion, it's you know widely available. And uh, you have within one mosque many different methodologies of, of prayer, for example, many different methodologies of, of how they approach Islam and, and the level of their uh, practice and, and how orthodox is going to be and how um, you know liberal is going to be and you have everyone gathering there you have on Friday for example uh, a thousand people uh, on, on a big day and uh, approximately 700 on a normal day coming so you have s such a big influx of, of people and you do have as well the leadership who is you know, making their effort to ensure that many of the people who are there, who are searching for the truth, who are looking for a direction, can find a direction, can have someone to talk to, can um, understand the concept of Islam in the right way, um, giving their days and their nights towards the mosque and making sure that anyone who's searching for a direction can have a direction to go. But you do have a reality to deal with, and the reality is that we cannot control our members, and we cannot control people on the whole. It's a free country, and everyone's able to do as they please. So, one of the things I, I do want to highlight, um, the Nur Islam Masjid has, has been one of those long-standing masjids in the country. Uh, it's, it's approximately 65 years old in its history approximately 50 years of its um, new building that is built that is being used right now. And um, for those years, we've had so much representation in our national public um, that, you know, it's remarkable to see the type of um, people that comes from Nur Islam. In fact, we have um, right now currently people who, are, who have been working in the government in, in different levels, in different offices. We have uh, police officers of many different ranks. But um, the thing about it is you have that type of inclusion in the national public and thereafter you have a report coming and saying that um, the mosque had some type of influence with the radicalization that took place within individuals that we had no control over or had no understanding of their path or what they would have been thinking in their own minds and the, the, the direction they, were, they would have been going. So it gives a, a really bad image to a, a great organization that had been 
having you know so much influence in community itself um, for example we have so many different drives within one roof where we have uh, hamper food um, distribution to the community at large it's not only to muslim community it's, it's to anyone who is in need we have hundreds of, of of those kind of hampers going out every single month we have things like clothes drive where people who need clothing they come and they donate their clothes and, and in return those people who need they're able to take we have uh, charity drives that takes place where we help people within our community on a month-to-month basis and that's not anything connected to any type of social services or anything but we have a month-to-month helping of people like uh, who are orphaned who have single parents who have um, you know they have challenges in their home who lost their job who need things and you know they just don't have enough finances don't have the ability to earn on their own uh, we have things like soup kitchen taking place. We have um, different engagements with the community that we would always maintain. We try to have good relationships with our police officers, our stations. Um, so there's just so much things happening under our organization. And for one report, two reports to go out in a negative light without even asking about or having an interview with, with the people that are going to be affected, uh, was something that was really disheartening and something that affected us a lot. And not just that effect that we're claiming, but we've had dozens of people who had, uh, for example, visas uh, for 20 years plus and who had, you know, who is living, who had been having family, for example, in, in the U.S. and they've been living there for, you know, their whole lives kind of thing and, um, you know, married and, and, and stuff across there. And then you have a problem with their visas here and they're getting cancelled. And when you ask them, why, why did your visa get cancelled? There was no obvious reason. They've been, they had no change in their entire life. Uh, the only connection that many of them were able to connect was that they were from this community of Nurislam. And that was really unfortunate that, that people had to go through that type of scrutiny. People were um, sent back. Again, the damage was done and it's not very easy to get rid of that that problem now but it's definitely something that we had to deal with and we're still dealing with it Mtima Solwazi, founder and CEO of the Oral Tradition Roots Foundation has been working with vulnerable youth in at-risk communities for over two decades he holds degrees in sociology psychology and criminology when asked what upsets him when it comes to the coverage of radicalization in Trinidad and Tobago this was his response so I think the media at times, may not be all the time, but at times they go off on sensationalization in that when news or issues of radicalization comes to the fore, it's like a race to see who could get the best story. And in racing to get the best story, oftentimes they overlook the human side of the story. They overlook the people who are oftentimes affected who are not directly involved in the acts of radicalization. So for instance, this recent case of persons leaving to go, it might sound unusual, but a lot of us didn't know until the act actually occurred. So we became victims of those persons' actions, and we became scapegoats to some media houses who use that opportunity to exploit right and to as i say it's a race for who could get the best story so that will be a pet peeve for most persons for myself also because i think sometimes we really need to 
see a story from both sides, you know, and not because a relative of mine or a friend of mine or someone from my mosque or from my community would have done something that in the eyes of the public is seen as wrong. I should be the one paying for that. I should be the one being subjected to forced interviews because they will find you or they will reach you wherever you are. You know, I should be the one to undergo scrutiny from the public as a result of what was broadcasted in the media. So that's it. Then what do we do to address the misconceptions that exist? Mr. Surwazi had this comment. You know, it's really interesting that this interview comes on the heels of what's happening in the United States and around the world in terms of that response to the murder of George Floyd. And I saw a video on Facebook where this African guy is saying that, I'll use me for example, my name is Emtima Solowazi. I'm a father of one. I have one wife. And, you know, he gave his demographics, his occupation, what he likes, what he doesn't like. He speaks about his parents, where he grew up, you know. And he said, I just think I should introduce myself before you call the police. And I think the media, they have the instruments and they have the right ingredients to get to know people. They could go into communities and engage communities meaningfully and find out, you know, let me get to know you as opposed to trying to get this, as I say, this sensationalization, this sensational story, you know. And again, my life could be a sensational life, you know. My struggles of who I have become is a story, but we don't take time to know people. You know, I visit communities all over East Port of Spain that have been labeled as Rasta City, whether or not the young men in those communities ascribed to that label or if it's a label put onto them by society, by media, by whoever. So these communities are called Rasta City. And I am Muslim by faith, not by gang. So I am Muslim. And I traverse throughout all these communities that are labeled Rasta City. And I remember one time there was a shooting in one of these communities. And it is alleged that it was Muslims who came and shot and killed someone and stuff like that. And when I heard it, I got scared. I said, oh my God, these fellas making bad for me. But what was even more scary was someone called me on my phone who never been to that community and said, Emtima, be careful. They might kill you if you go back. And foolish me, I'm saying foolish me because I have never had a problem in that community. Everyone knows I'm Muslim. I have never had a problem. And that phone call bothered me to the extent that I called one of the leaders in the community and I said, what is my status now? And the person responded, I don't understand what you asked me. I said, no, what is my status now? How safe I am? And I got, you know, in Trinidad, when your parents school and you verbally, we call it a buff. I got one of the loudest and harshest buff from that guy. He said, Emptima, 
have you ever had a problem in this community before? I said, no. He said, Entima, have we ever treated you badly in this community before? I said, no. He said, so Entima, what nonsense you asking me if you're safe? You know, what is your status? And then I apologized because someone who never been to the community, someone who doesn't know the people in the community, telling me be careful. That is our biggest problem. Let us get to know people before we judge them and based on what. I am not saying, I'm not saying that there are not challenges in any community. Come on, let's be real. Any community has their own unique challenges, right? But why place people in such a position? You don't just judge them. You discriminate against them. You marginalize them. And then when people respond in a way that they feel we know about the labeling theory, and when people respond in a certain way, we say, eh, look at them. They're bad. They're this, they're that. You know, so I think the media have the best instrument and the best tools to change the image of any community. Go in and meet with the people. You know, and it will be unfair of me to just broad brush the entire media and say, the media bad because I'm on a media platform now sharing, right? But I'm saying we could do a lot better. We could do much better. After all is said and done, the issue that remains is how will the process of reintegration take place and how effective will it be? There are still many open-ended questions, including housing, schools, special care needs, and the sensitization of a population who may be skeptical. The case of the two boys offers some insight for success of reintegration. Their father took them to Syria in 2015 and they were presumed dead until their mother, Felicia Perkins, found out otherwise. Without the resources to get her sons, the story touched the heart of Pink Floyd's Roger Waters, who underwrote the rescue mission. Perkins was reunited with her sons, and due to the support of friends and family members, they're finally at home and at peace. But it shows the importance of community and family.